Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Chizinski, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that's my fact. My fact is, in 1996, a windsurfer successfully broke into Alcatraz prison while it was hosting the movie premiere of The Rock, a film about people trying to break into Alcatraz. Wow. That's good. So he broke he broke into a pr- the prison. This is a guy called Jeff Bunch, um, and he was a windsurfer who was on the outskirts of it, and he wanted to go, so he wore a sort of tuxedo over his uh, his wetsuit, and he Hang got on. to the island. Over his wetsuit? I know, a bit weird, right? I guess he didn't plan on falling in, so if you don't fall in, you're dry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's the idea, right? That is sensible, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, actually this, yeah. James Bond does it the wrong way, doesn't he? Like, he, he has a wetsuit over his tuxedo doesn't he and then he has to go to the changing rooms (laughs) find a pound put it in the locker take his wetsuit off and it actually doesn't make any sense because the wetsuit doesn't stop you getting wet underneath so actually when he reveals a tuxedo James Bond it should be drenched (laughs) yeah Yeah. I'm starting to wonder if that scene in the movie I've just made it up So uh, this guy did it the right way around. He, he wanted right to get to the around. premiere. Yeah, he wanted to get into the premiere, and supposedly he did. He was arrested and taken off premises, but he said he managed to get a cocktail with Sean Connery. So oh, I, wow. I haven't seen The Rock. What? I know, but I gather it's Michael Bay's best film. Do you? And I, well, I gather that in a, like a crowded field of other films Michael Bay has made. Better than Transformers <laughs> Three. I know, I know, I know. It's a controversial opinion. I've read, I've read a thing saying it's his. I think it's supposed to be quite good, isn't it? I, I love it. Yeah, okay. it's, it's an awesome movie, and I think it's his favorite movie that he's made. All I saw is it got sixty-six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which to me is definitely not worth saying. Yeah, but to 66. Michael Bay, that is an absolute <laughs> triumph. <laughs> Real Michael Bay slamming today. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. Okay. So it is about, and it has Sean Connery in it, and it has apparently Navy SEALs trying to break into the island in the film, and they used real Navy SEALs in the yeah, production, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, just for anyone who doesn't know the movie, which apparently no one does, <laughs> um, the idea is that many, many years ago, someone successfully escaped from Alcatraz, and he was put in prison when he was caught on the other side. He's been in solitary confinement for years, and suddenly The Rock, as it is known, is taken over by a bunch of military people who've gone rogue. So they need to break back into it. And they in, they get this guy, Sean Connery, out of jail to help them back in with Nicolas Cage. That's the basic premise. Oh. So the rock, the, is, the rock is in it. The Rock is not in it. Oh. The the island plays the role of The Rock in oh, it. Right. Yeah, Alcatraz, <laughs> Alcatraz is known as The Rock. Oh. This party sounds really cool, actually. Um, there were 500 guests and they were told to dress informally. This is according to an article I read in SF Gate. Um, and Patricia Arquette was there and she was wearing a chocolate brown three-quarter length satin coat with matching pants by Dolce & Gabbana and an aqua silk blouse that matched her iridescent eyeshadow. Wow. So that was her dressing informally. <laughs> uh, and Sean Connery was wearing a tan parker, a fisherman sweater and no toupee. <laughs> nice. No toupee. According to SF Gate. <laughs> That's for Dress Down Friday, who you don't put your toupee on. You never get asked on the red carpet, and whose toupee are you uh, wearing tonight? 
Um, here's a tiny little funny fact I found about the actual making of The Rock. Mm. Um, the script was done, but they brought in some writers to sort of punch up the script, add some jokes, but also to do some rewrites. And the two people they brought in were the guys who wrote Porridge, the British sitcom. <laughs> wow. This is a Michael Bay action. And yeah, the creator of The Likely Lads came in to That's do so the script. Funny. Yeah. That's a great bit of trivia. <laughs> So the Rock of Alcatraz, this is not the only time that a former criminal from Alcatraz has gone back to it, as in it happens fictionally in the film, but it's happened in real life as well. So they're pretty sure that um, Whitey Bulger, he was a gangster, he was involved in lots of murders, not a nice guy. He was there for four years when it was operating as a prison, and then later on he went back as a tourist. He went oh, there with a girlfriend. Really? And he, he With a girlfriend? Yeah. Just take you back to my old haunts. <laughs> <laughs> well, when they were there, they did all the tourist stuff. So he dressed up in a striped uniform, which they let you do. Wow. And he had a photo taken behind a set of replica bars. That Wait, is amazing. Wh- wow. When was this? Because he was, wasn't him in there ages ago. I think he was in, in the late 60s, early 70s. And he, he went back. closed in the 60s, didn't it? 62? Ah, mm. uh, okay. Must have been 63, it was closed. Uh, yeah. Okay. But he went back, obviously, later when it was a tourist attraction. Yeah. I wonder what date you bring up that you were a former Alcatraz person. Oh, open it. I think it's on the Tinder profile. (laughs) (laughs) Swipe right or else. (laughs) Because if you were going out with someone who'd been in Alcatraz, that would be a really cool little thing to say about your boyfriend, wouldn't it? And you'd want to go there and experience it. You think that's a cool thing to say? My boyfriend was at Alcatraz, the most secure for the worst of worst criminals? It's not actually for the worst of worst criminals. That is a bit of a a misconception. So that would be the first thing I said about my boyfriend (laughs) when someone said that. Although although Whitey Bulger was involved in 19 murders. So I don't know if he's in... Minimum security. Yeah, and look, maybe yeah. that didn't come up till the third day. Some of them were just tax avoiders, <laughs> <laughs> like Al Capone. Yeah. So this is the it's thing. Real mixed ability prison, isn't it? <laughs> the thing with the Alcatraz was really was a prison to cure people who were in other prisons who kept on kind of trying to break out or misbehaving, pulling pranks on the prison officers, that kind of thing. Pulling pranks. <laughs> pulling pranks. Yeah, like trying to kill them. And. <laughs> So that's why it's kind of a amusing idea in a way, because basically, like, that's it's what it was. Boyfriend Whitey, I, I, he's, we say murder, he's more of a prankster, really. <laughs> he was found guilty of 17 pranks. <laughs> so it's basically a prison of people who had experience of ex- escaping from wow. other prisons. So in fact, I think the most famous escape probably was of Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin. And they inspired the film Escape from Alcatraz, the 1979 film. And they got out in 1962. But they'd all come there because they'd escaped or attempted to escape other prisons. And their, I mean, their escape is incredible, Ooh, isn't it's it? It's so good. It's unbelievable. So I just read The Count of Monte Cristo and I thought, this is implausible, everything he does to get out. Mm. But they, so they chipped away at their cell walls with spoons for ages um, and then they would conceal their work with kind of painted cardboard that they'd access somehow. They did. They made an improvised drill from a vacuum cleaner, which, I mean, how do you do that? And they disguised, <laughs> somehow they disguised the noise of the vacuum cleaner working as a drill by having one of them play the accordion the whole time. <laughs> they should have played the spoons. But, well, the spoon was busy. They've got... Oh, I so, yeah. <laughs> who's letting them get all this stuff, though? I mean, who's let the accordion in, I think, is the big question. You know, really vacuum is. cleaner, sure. Spoon, fine. But well, they, they had a band there. Like, Al Capone was part of the band. One of the famous prisoners. Wow. Yeah, yes. I think he was on Banjo or something like that. And he was. Yeah. He started the band, I think. So this was way, way before this escape, wasn't it? Mm. In the 30s when Al Capone was there. Yeah. But yeah. It was a very long-running band. 
<laughs> and I guess it's very easy to do a reunion tour decades later because <laughs> you're all still in Alcatraz. <laughs> I think it's like Sugar Babes. It's a constantly rotating task. <laughs> uh, so so more, more on this escape. We didn't get to the end of it. Oh, oh. They, they had papier-mâché. They made papier-mâché heads of themselves and they made it not they didn't have actual papier mache they had to use toilet paper and soap and they made these they sculpted these heads of themselves and then they covered them in real hair which they got from the prison barbershop cool. brilliant <laughs> yeah so good they stole over 50 raincoats again don't know where they're getting 50 raincoats from they? <laughs> they stole these raincoats and they made them into makeshift life jackets and they vulcanized them properly uh, using steam pipes in the prison they worked this out from some kind of magazine wow. they'd had smuggled in and um, they also I think converted one of them into a life raft and apparently they converted a musical instrument according to the FBI into a tool to inflate the life raft oh well you just use the accordion you squeeze it up and down don't you that oh, sounds like the one wow. doesn't it yeah. <laughs> But then yeah. they'll hear you blowing up the... <laughs> yeah. It can't be that. <laughs> In fact, the whole point of musical instruments is they all make a noise when you pass wind through them. That's true. <laughs> uh, I went on the FBI website and they said that they officially closed the case on December 31st, 1979 about this escape. Um, but they have turned the responsibility over to the US Marshal Service who continue to investigate... So if you at home have any leads or information to share about this escape from 1962, uh, then please call Deputy U.S. Marshal Michael Dyke on 415-436-7677. You You cop. (laughs) (laughs) But he thinks they made it. He thinks they made it to the mainland, definitely, and that they made it away. Because some people think that the raft, which was made of um, raincoats, and it was also made of cement, that was the other ingredient. Because they're after raincoats and cement. But he thinks they got away. Um, and the family of the Anglin brothers, two of the SKPs, they think that they attended their mother's funeral. Really? Yeah, because their mother died several years later. But obviously, the funeral, the place was crawling with FBI agents. And they mm. think they might have attended dressed as women. Ah. And the, all three of them will be pardoned, but only if they make it to the age of 100 Um, There was a team of Dutch scientists who did some computer simulations about whether the rafts would have made it to the mainland. Uh, They launched 50 virtual rafts every half hour between 8pm and 4am by looking at all the tides that would have happened at the time and from different locations on the island. And they found that if they left at exactly midnight on the night, they might have made it. Uh, They would have been sucked out towards the Golden Gate Bridge, but at the moment they were close to the Golden Gate, the tide would have reversed, and that would have sent them to the north side of the bridge, and they would have been able to get to the land. Wow. And that's the only specific time. Every other time, they would have got sucked out to sea. But this is assuming that they weren't just there controlling the rafts, right? Yes, they did actually put into the computer that they might be able to do some steering because wow, they had some oars. They made a couple of oars. They yeah. did have a couple of oars, but they were both made out of accordions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the escaping via the only method through the through the ocean there was there's a theory that so alcatraz was meant to be actually quite a pleasant experience in terms of food in terms of their showers they had hot showers prison Ooh, yeah. prisons don't really have that pleasant's a strong word we should clarify it's, well, maybe it's not it wasn't such awful yeah. uh, 
You got your own cell, which actually was, uh, according to a bunch of people who've written about it since having come out, saying that that's a really pleasant experience not to be in it. I think what Anna's saying is it's like pleasant experience compared to being in prison. It's not the writ. It's not not an objectively pleasant experience. It's like saying that The Rock is a good movie compared to the other Michael Bay movies. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. uh, No. um, But you know know why they had hot showers? Well, this is, yeah, I was about to say, because of the ocean. So the, the theory was that they were so used to hot water that when they got into the ocean that would immediately give them hypothermia or they wouldn't be used to it as opposed to cold showers getting them used to a a cold swim it is swimmable so people have swum so i think in oh when was it it was it the year before the prison opened actually uh, a 17 year old girl swam it in 47 minutes wow and she's not even the youngest person to have done it obviously you need to be very lucky with the currents and the tides um because it's pretty treacherous but in 2006 a seven-year-old boy swam it no also in 47 minutes what isn't that crazy wow do you think that maybe it's like you know when you go to um a water park and mm. there's that ride where you just sit in a ring and it just takes you around in exactly 47 minutes. Mm. It seems like there must be just a current that switches on once a day. Yeah. <laughs> and that just take, pretty much helps. Uh, some of the people here in Alcatraz. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Um, Basil Banghart. He was known as the owl because he had big eyes. Uh, Ellsworth <laughs> Raymond Johnson was known as bumpy because he had a bump on the back of his head. And Joseph Bowers was known as Dutch because he was born in Austria. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Presumably, they just they heard he was European and just gave yeah, that name. So funny. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that Horatio Nelson had a brother whose name was Suckling Nelson. <laughs> mm. So, wow. not the most heroic of the Nelson siblings. No, it feels like he was given a short shrift in life, wasn't he? Yeah. By getting that name. Definitely. He was never going to become the, you know, the head of the <laughs> Navy. Well, maybe it um, means he was the only one who was breastfed. Do we know if that was the reason? That was not the reason. Right. That's a well, great theory. So this fact actually comes from friend of the podcast, Carrie Ad Lloyd, oh. who sent it to me saying, you're the only person who will find this interesting. That's <laughs> um, no, great. So it's because of the suckling side of the family. So his mother was called Catherine Suckling. Okay. And... Uh, uh, she had a brother called Morris Suckling. And so there were, Nelson was one of uh, 11 children, eight of whom survived to adulthood. So a lot of siblings. And I think they were running a bit short of names. And Suckling was one of the last brothers born. And he was not very uh, impressive, I think. So no. there's a, there are almost no references to him in biographies of Nelson. One of them no. just describes him as the feckless Suckling. Uh, <laughs> basically, he was a struggling vicar. And yeah. Nelson got him a job. He was vicar. a draper in Beckles. Um, who tried to be a draper but failed. And then he became a vicar when his father, who was a vicar, retired. And he became the vicar, and then he died a few years later. And I don't think he was very close to Horatio Nelson because uh, Horatio wrote to his wife in 1799, I am not surprised at my brother's death. Three are dead younger than myself. That was his response to the death of his brother. Oh, God. He died quite young, and actually his father, so their father, wrote to Kitty, who was Nelson's sister, about Suckling. Um, He will no doubt pass amongst a crowd of undistinguished preachers and gain some respect in the village from his quiet disposition, his liking to a little conviviality, and his passion for greyhound racing. Wow. (laughs) God, this podcast has turned into a roast of Suckling. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. 
Dead for Ages brought back finally via Carriad. I know. I'm just ripping him. Taken down again. Uh, The name Suckling came from the surname of the family. Yeah. yeah. um, Which comes from um, the word to suck. And in ancient times, it was a baptismal or patronomic name of endearment. So it's like how you have the surname Darling. Okay. Oh, there's a poet called Sir John Suckling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? So I was reading about Sir John Suckling, um, and he's related directly. So he was an English poet. He wrote Ballad Upon a Wedding. He also is credited as having invented the card game Cribbage. Really? Really? Yeah. I studied Sir John Suckling at school. Did you? Yeah, he was one of this group called the Cavalier Poets, who are a lot of sort of roistering lads who are all in favour of King Charles. I think you've mentioned him before. I think so. And the poem Ballad Upon a Wedding contains one of the... is an early masturbation joke. Does it? Does yeah. it? At a wedding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the ceremony. <laughs> do, do you have the joke? Um, I think it's, it's talking about how, how beautiful the bride is, and it's saying that if... So hot I had a wife. <laughs> I think it's saying that if the if the groom had 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 slept with the if the groom slept with a bride as often as all the sort of invited male friends had imagined themselves doing it, uh, it would have spoiled him. Surely, wow, yeah. Is that a masturbation joke? Yeah, because they're all imagining that they're 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 sleeping with her. Of and, course, um, sorry. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah. Nice. But he was probably the most eminent of the sucklings. It's thanks to the sucklings that Nelson went to see in the first place. Because it was the um, Nelson's uncle, Morris Suckling, who, uh, when um, Nelson's mother, Catherine, died, uh, Nelson was only, I think, uh, eight or ten years old. He was quite, he was very young. And Uncle Morris said, well, I'll take one of the children off your hands. And that happened to be Horatio. And then Morris got command of a ship. And Nelson wrote to him saying, take me to sea, please. I want to go to sea. I want to go and have adventures. So that's how he got into the Navy. He could have been a draper. Car, a a missed opportunity. We could have such amazing curtains. You could have Suckling's (laughs) column. (laughs) <laughs> um, the thing about his mother that he remembered so I got that his mother died when he was nine so I like that you skirted around that with eight and ten it's between eight and ten <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think his mother died when he was either eight, nine or ten and he said he remembered her well he claimed to remember her well but then the only concrete thing he said he remembered about her was that she hated the French <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole thing just an attempt to please his mum it yeah. sounds like it might be wow. the whole wow. thing <laughs> Um, he was not very impressive in adulthood. I mean, to 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 crowds who were observing Horatio him. Nelson. Horatio, yeah, yeah. So crowds thought he was rubbish. He was, um, you know, he was very short. And a German onlooker at a crowd said, "A more miserable collection of bones and wizened frame I have never yet come across." Ouch! I know. Yeah, but he had the crap kicked out of him at war. Yeah, I mean, he I lost, mean, he lost an arm. He lost he an blind arm. In one eye. Yeah, yeah, like this isn't a guy who was. You he, know. Had, he had a hernia. There you go. I you mean, can't see that on the outside, though, can you? You can. If you've got your top off, but I don't think he did not have his top off. (laughs) (laughs) Although he was very good at his own PR, so if he had a six-pack, and he also invented the phrase, the Nelson touch. To, um, what does that mean? It's it's about having some kind of brilliant naval strategy. It's oh. amazing, and people use it, you know, even today in the Do navy. They? Yeah, yeah, it's a phrase. It's not used much outside navies, I think. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> have we talked about um, Lady Hamilton? No, before, Ooh, Emma Hamilton have. and stuff. So um, Nelson was married to Fanny, and um, but then decided to leave her for Emma Hamilton, who was married to William Hamilton at the time. And Nelson was sending love letters to Emma Hamilton. But William Hamilton knew the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, so was opening all of his mail and reading whatever he was saying and sending it to the government. So whenever he was sending letters like 
um, to Emma Hamilton saying like, I kissed you fervently and we enjoyed the height of love. Ah, Emma, I pour out my soul to you. Her yeah. husband was reading all that stuff and I guess scanning over it and getting to the important oh. naval stuff. But, yeah. oh. So he completely knew about the whole thing. But wow. then, of course, they ended up living in some kind of weird menage a trois. Yeah. They lived yeah. in the same house, was it? Yeah. And they... Yeah. They seemed pretty open by the end of it. Everyone was kind of cool with it. It was a very modern sort of foursome and Fanny seemed not to have too much of an issue. And They I, had a really unhappy marriage yeah. with husband and his wife. Yeah. So I think it was probably a relief for both of them when he buggered off with the lady. If they kept the family surname, she could have been called Fanny Suckling. Oh, that would have been the dream, wouldn't it? Yeah. Actually, as well, Emma Hamilton used to call Fanny Tom Tit. As a nickname, <laughs> so she could have been Tom Titsuckling. <laughs> Titsuckling, oh god! Uh, and that was because it was really not very nice. So um, she suffered from rheumatism in her legs and supposedly walked a bit like a bird. And so Emma Hamilton, oh. being a bit not very nice, that's catty. It's a bit Rebecca Vardy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read a really random thing about Fanny Nisbet. Um, so before she married Nelson, she was guardian to these three children who were the kids of a plantation owner who was away in the Caribbean with his wife. And him and his wife returned, and Fanny Nisbet's looking after these kids. And Fanny brought the three kids in to say, hey, here's, here's daddy. Uh, and he said, who on earth are these children? And she, Fanny said, good God, don't you know them? You know, didn't recognise his own kids. They're your children. And so neither of the couple had recognised their own children. What? And it said that his wife was so surprised that she set her headdress on fire on a nearby <laughs> candle. <laughs> What on earth is that story? <laughs> it's really random. <laughs> it's just so random. It's like you come home, you know, you must know you have three children. You so when three children stand in front of you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a process of deduction going on there, isn't there? <laughs> you would have thought she hadn't figured it out. She was astonished. Did she set her headdress on fire deliberately as a protest against the looks of these children? <laughs> or did she stagger back into a candle? If it's not clear. It's written in a letter by her husband and he doesn't specify. He just says she set her headdress on fire. That's an amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an episode of Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know the Hardy, uh, Kiss Me Hardy, I oh, think yeah. we've mentioned mm. before, his dying words, Kiss Me Hardy, to one of his officers. Hardy later became First Lord of the Admiralty. He did really well in his yeah, career. Cool. Yeah, um, But this is amazing. The Nelsons and the Hardys are still in touch as a family. Wow. Yeah. So there was a dinner party in 1990, and there was a woman there called Mary Arthur. She is descended from Nelson. And her husband was talking to one of the other guests and said, oh, this is my wife. She's a descendant of Nelson. And the person they were talking to, Robin Stainer, said, that's funny. I'm descended from Hardy. And they got back in touch that way. Wow. Not having known each other. They've been in touch since then. Uh, and they became really good friends. And the Times wrote about it. The Times said, Mrs. Arthur, who lives in Woburn in Bedfordshire, confirmed that the two descendants continue the family's tradition of kissing. Nice. <laughs> it sounds like it's all an excuse for them to have an affair. I don't think that's <laughs> bad at all. <laughs> I think he said, I'm a descendant of Hardy. And she said, kiss me, Hardy. And then they crossed the table and snogged. And the husband can't say anything because they're just reenacting the historic scene. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really bad story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that in the 11th century, hundreds of people in the UK paid their rent in eels. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so this is a website run by a guy called John Wyatt Greenlee. He's a historian uh, whose work, according to his site, examines the cultural history of eels in England from the 10th through the 17th centuries, focusing on eels' role in economic change, the growth of a national English identity, and the evolution of spatial practice in early modern London. And that was a quote that was a lot longer than I thought it was going to be when it started. Um, but he has a bit where he looks at rents that were paid in eels, and this was a thing that happened probably before the 10th century, but that's where we have the records from. For instance, the Doomsday Book records payments like the village of Harmston, um, who owed Earl Hugh 75,000 eels per year per for year. their rent. So much. Wow. Dead or alive? Uh, I think dead. Okay. Okay. It's harder to collect. I suppose live eels. Yes, no, it's, it is. E- it's easier to collect. No, it isn't, Andy. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I'll, I'll tell you why. If there are 10 dead eels on the floor and 10 live eels in a bucket, let's yeah. see who can pick them up quickest. Okay, it's easier to collect dead eels, but it's harder to find them, I think. Harder to find dead eels. It's harder to find yeah. dead eels lying around. Yeah, the natural state is alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah I do get that. Um, but presumably they're eel farmers, right? It's not people going around no, just looking no, for no, dead it's eels. Not, there are no farm. You can't farm an eel. You can't farm an eel. <laughs> you can't farm an eel. No. And um, this was basically um, people catching them mm. uh, and then selling them at market and then picking them up and using the most kind of currency. Oh wow! And they were dead because they came on sticks. So you get twenty-five eels on a stick. So when you had to give seventy-five thousand eels, it would be. What, 3,000 sticks? Hmm. Wow. What? It was sort of like a, the equivalent of candy floss or something. You'd take a stick of eels. Yeah. And lick away at it. Ugh. I'm not sure about the licking part. Um, Why yeah. were rent collectors so keen on eel? Well, was there just a huge stop? Popular, popular food. Yeah. It is okay. popular food. So, John White Greenlee says that. The reason that he looks into this is actually, if you look in the Doomsday Book, there's payments in pigs, in fish, in ale. You might pay in different foods and drinks. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have cash, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a thing that everyone has. But people these days are really particularly interested in eels because we don't really eat eels anymore. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a list and it says 75,000 eels, you go, bloody hell. Where'd you get 75,000 eels from? You can't farm an eel. Although I I had an eel for breakfast at the weekend. Did you really? Yeah. Smoked eel. Yeah. So we don't eat eel, eels anymore. They're no, less, no, I know what you less. mean. I had cornflakes, but <laughs> what I'm saying is it's less common. It's less. I didn't have, yeah, 75,000 eels. But there used to be, maybe it was just there was a lot more. So I think 50% were, yeah. of the biomass of European freshwaters or some parts of it was made of eel in the olden days. Wow. That Say the olden incredible. days. I don't have an exact year, but around this time. And East yeah. Anglia too, back in the days before the fens were drained, mm. was was very rich eel territory. Mm. You know, you'd go boating around the waters. And, and th- uh, this guy, jo- uh, John Wyatt Greenlee, he's brilliant. Yeah. His, medi- his Twitter name is Surprised Eel Historian. Yeah. <laughs> and then the biography for him says, Surprised Historian, not Surprised Eels. Um, <laughs> he's a medievalist at Cornell University, and he's um, is, and he's done a map. He's done an interactive map of the UK, and you can look on it, and you can click to see where your nearest local eel rent was. And I looked, and it's about four miles from where I grew up, Kingston. Uh, there was a rent of 125 eels. Wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, so, it's really interesting. My closest was Manchester. 
Nice. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I just was busy looking at his replies to that tweet because it was so successful. He was like, oh my God, who would have thought? Eels. This is fantastic. <laughs> so he was a surprise deal historian. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's done a kind of calculation of what eels would get you today in today's money. Mm-hmm. So he said that he worked out, because he's at Cornell University, uh, that if you had to pay to go to Cornell University, you would need between 106,612 and 213,024 eels either of which represents a number of eels that the Cornell Bursar's office is ill-prepared to handle. Wow. <laughs> he did say that an Amazon Prime membership, which is $99 a year, uh, would cost only 150 to 300 eels. Ah. That's about 6 to 12 sticks of eels. I really didn't know that you cannot eat eel raw. So again, in mm. sushi, it's did you kind just of... find that this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a very bad few days. You get it in sushi, don't you? You do, and it's yeah. always cooked. So, because if you eat it raw, it's got toxic blood and it, it causes, your, causes your muscles to spasm, including your heart. And it got, it's got enough toxin that it can kill a human being. Yeah. If Can't you do suck it. all the blood out of an eel, you'll die. Yeah. Wow. I think you deserve to as well. <laughs> <laughs> but so that, if we're saying um, eels not eaten that much here these days, in Japan, it's obviously massive. They have an annual um, consumption rate of 100,000 tons of eels. So that's 70% of the worldwide eel catch Whoa. that we get. Yeah. Um, but they've declined in their eel population so massively, something like genuinely 99%. Like that's how high it is. So they now have to import eel, glass eel and so on from America in order to eat but also as a result because they're manufacturing great sushi out there that gets sent back to america the americans are sending their eels over to then have it sent back to eat so it's taken two plane rides by the time they've eaten that's kind of nice in a way because eels in their migration are used to migrating thousands of kilometers they have this extraordinary migration so it's maybe it's sort of nice that posthumously they're still migrating thousands of miles back and forth do you think that's a little bit of consolation for the no i don't think so no probably not (laughs) i I mean the, the population decline is amazing so there are temporary bans that have been put in place in the UK and it's it's lots to do with dredging of the ocean as well this this mm. really uh just decimates the population but they hatch in the Sargasso Sea which is uh West Indies way mm-hmm. Bermuda yeah it's like north it's it's and it's not a sea it's a portion of the north atlantic isn't it yeah. so it's a portion of the ocean yeah. yeah but then they drift over on the gulf stream when they're really tiny and then they burrow into river mouths and, and estuaries and things in the UK and across Europe. And then they stay there for up to 12 years. But some of them could live in a pool for up to 30 or 40 years, just living there and getting bigger. And then they suddenly, they feel the call. They swim back to the Sargasso Sea. They spawn. They die. Yeah. We think, we, we think. We think. No one's ever seen it happen. No one's ever seen an eel spawn. It's crazy. It's insane. So in the olden days, people like Pliny and all those other types, until the 1700s, kind of thought they came from nowhere. And I kind of still think they do. Because yeah. no one's seen them spawn. We found young eels, very young eels spawn in the Sargasso Sea, haven't we? And then we've got the old eels that look totally different, yeah. by the way, um, in Europe and America. But that's it. And they're constantly changing colour. So when they spawn, they look like these tiny like glass leaves. And then they become transparent glass eels. Mm-hmm. And then they turn into like, like noodle looking things. They go brown. Then they go yellow. Then they go silver. It's this weird kind of disco effect. And silver is the one where you know that they're going to start heading back to the Sargasso yeah. Sea to, to die. And, How do they and feel the call? We don't know that either. We don't know. No. And we, we don't do know. know that if you farm an eel... 
which you can do these days. Oh no, they have you eel can. farmers. I apologize. <laughs> but if you like have an eel farm and you raise them there, so they were born there, yeah. they still have the instinct to return to the Sargasso wow. Sea, which is kind of embedded in them somehow. So do they? That's are they just amazing. jamming their heads into the edge of the pond in the direction of the Sargasso Sea? I fear they might do that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. They're really clever in the way they migrate as well. So now we have scientists, not us, have actually tagged them. Bizarrely, they haven't managed to tag them all the way into the migration. Just, come on, they're just not looking close enough for the spawn, are they? I know. I reckon if we go to the Sargasso Sea. Yeah. Well, I think you can see the spawn. You've just never seen the eels spawn it, right? There was um, one. There was one Danish scientist who spent 15 years of his career looking in the mid-Atlantic for seven millimetre long <laughs> um, larvae. Well, I mean, and he never did. Yeah, but that. I mean, it does feel like he's not done a very good job. <laughs> you surely look for the bigger ones on their way back to yeah. the Sargasso Sea. You would look. Have we seen that? You would look at the spawn. And yep. then you keep looking at it at earlier and earlier times and then look at the bigger ones at later and later times and eventually the two things must come together. Guys, uh, it must be harder than it looks. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm sure these people would have succeeded. <laughs> anyway, so I was just saying that they, we, we have tagged them now. So they've tagged them for about the first 1,500 kilometres of their journey. And what they found out is if you tag a European eel when it's going back to spawn, it doesn't make a beeline for the Sargasso Sea. It doesn't do the shortest route. Mm. It heads a bit further south, so it heads towards like where the Azores would be. And that's because they're smart enough to know that there are ocean currents that they then pick up like a conveyor belt. And that'll get them there much faster. And that's like the only way they get there in time. a seven-year-old boy off Alcatraz. Cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is amazing. And they can just sit in it, not do anything. <laughs> so we've been looking as to how they spawn for centuries, right? Um, but it was only in the early 1900s that that was found. And it was this guy that you're talking about. It was a Ooh. Danish biologist, Johann Schmidt. Mm. And he, he was the one who pinpointed the Sargasso as the spot that they were doing it. Um, and he, I was just looking into him, um, he was married to a lady called Cool, and he studied under a man called Warming. Very nice. <laughs> How nice is that? That's yeah. Really good. Good. yeah really and uh, so Cool uh, was the daughter of the, Car- the old Carlsberg Brewery in Copenhagen, the chief director there. And actually the whole thing, the reason we know about the spawning mm. is Carlsberg itself sponsored him to go and look for it. So it's thanks to Carlsberg Beer that we know about this. Wow. And was he the 15 years guy? Yeah. That was probably not the best scientific study in the world. Wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then this other guy, Warming, is a Danish botanist who is a founder of the scientific discipline of ecology. He's the relationship of man and earth um, is called Warming, which is quite nice. Nice. Because, that was yeah. a really good scientific fact, Stan. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, there is one reported case of a male dolphin masturbating by wrapping an electric eel around its penis. <laughs> What? How do we know it was masturbating? He was thinking about John Suckling's wife at the time. <laughs> I mean, did it ejaculate at the end? I, Anna, I haven't seen is, the video. This is too personal a question. I'm sorry, but if the dolphin is going to tell us it's been masturbating with an eel, then we want the details. Uh, I don't know. You're quite right. The eel might have been trying to asphyxiate the penis. Indeed. Or have sex with it, thinking it's another eel. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. Speaking of... Um, members with uh, eels wrapped around them. Good link. Okay. There is an old tradition in the Fens of England of using a wedding ring made of eel skin. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So that's another way you can wrap a bit of eel around yourself to symbolise a love match. Yeah. So, it sounds appara- very flimsy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's the ring for life, but it's maybe maybe the ring you use for the wedding ceremony. Okay, uh, or someone did, you feel like it's yeah. your first husband kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Chizinski. My fact is that according to Polynesian mythology, Maui, who is the god in the Disney film Moana, died by climbing into a goddess's vagina and being crushed to death by the obsidian teeth in there. And they didn't show that (laughs) in the film. Yeah, Yeah, we went to Disney and watched that film. Do you remember? Because we were sponsored by Moana. Yeah, that's right. Um, You guys were quite late getting in because you needed to... Do you remember you had to sign in or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And so you missed the start of it. But I went in without signing in. Uh, and they showed that scene actually. Oh, you get that at yeah, the top. Yeah. It's oh, at the top. God. Oh. Show, show the death scene at the top. Okay. And then the rest is a flashback. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so if you did miss that first scene of the film, um, or the film, you should know that this so this is the film Moana, and Moana's sort of demigod sidekick in the film is Maui, who was a real god, very important god in or demigod in Pacific mythology. And he exists all over the Pacific Islands. So like in Hawaii, he's very important, but Tahiti's Samoa, the Maori people, they all have slightly different versions of him. But there is a version where he's a real trickster um, character. He's in, a prankster. He's a prankster. He's like Whitey Bulger or Al Capone. He's a, yeah. He's a prankster How slash many? murderer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Does he murder anyone? He doesn't, actually. He's just a little prankster. And one of the ways he dies is when he's trying to become immortal. And the way he decides to do this is to enter the goddess of death, who's called Hine Nui Tepo, uh, to get in through her vagina, pluck out her heart on the way up to her mouth, then emerge from her mouth. And apparently this will reverse the birth process and make him immortal. I don't know if that's scientifically accurate. Anyway, (laughs) he does this and he's got his bird friends with him. So some birds who are his mates. And he says, please don't laugh while I do this because she'll wake up and they couldn't hold it in because it's quite funny watching someone climb through a vagina (laughs) (laughs) and Um. so she woke up and she tensed up and the little teeth in her vagina which we all have um, (laughs) crushed him to death wow that is quite a story she's really she's described as did you say she's the goddess of death yes oh wait or of mortality I think death and mortality okay She's got a very uh, vivid description in the myth. She's got eyes of green stone, hair of kelp, and the mouth of a barracuda. Mm. As well as, of course, having a toothy fanny. (laughs) Uh, She has a vagina a bit like a moray eel. They've got really big teeth, haven't they? Oh, they do. They've got like a pharyngeal jaw like alien. Oh, yeah. Mm. And they've got got backwards teeth so that if you accidentally swim in the mouth, you can't swim out again. Oh, gosh. Grandmama, what big teeth you have. And what a surprising location. (laughs) (laughs) So Maui? Anything on Maui? Um, Well, actually, we said that he didn't, his pranks didn't kill anyone. And I think that is true, perhaps. I don't know of any that did. Um, But he did once go fishing with a guy called Irawaru, who was the husband of his sister. And he was so annoyed with Irawaru that he turned him into a dog. Ooh. Uh, and that was the first ever dog and that's where dogs come from because Maui actually if you know the song from Moana You're okay. Welcome which is his big song it's all about the things which he did so he created the moon and the sun and the wind and all these different yeah. things and he pulled yes. the islands up from the ocean floor didn't yeah. he he had um, he had a magic jawbone which according to some of the myths is the jawbone of his grandmother but is also quite big so she must have been huge um, and he did things useful things with it so he used it as a fish hook to pull up islands from the ocean floor and actually the names of North Island and South Island in New Zealand now 
are Te Ika a Maui and Te Waka a Maui, which means fish of Maui and canoe of Maui, oh. because that's oh. from when he caught a fish and turned it into an island, and he turned his canoe into another island. That's so it was turning cool. stuff into islands. That's great. You raised the sky? That was the thing he did? The sky was pressed down close to the earth, so that it was if the height of a tall tree... Mm-hmm. It was pressed right down to there. So it's obviously very restrictive for everybody. And uh, he just lifted it up and ran to a very high peak and chucked it up in the air. That would be so annoying if the sky was that low, wouldn't it? Yeah. So was it so, like, it wouldn't, you wouldn't hit your head on it, but you no. would be able to fly a drone? You wouldn't be able to fly a drone. <laughs> mm. no. Nightmare. Yeah. Nightmare. So another character in Moana is Tafiti, who's that goddess who comes up at the end. She's actually based on Pele who is a genuine goddess in Hawaiian mythology. And so she's like the most important goddess, goddess of volcanoes and stuff like that. It's like the big um, volcano in Hawaii is called Mount Pele or Pili, I think. Yes. Yes. And that's kind of her embodiment. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Cool. You're meant to, I think you're meant to pay tribute to it when you go there. Um, oh, right. people... I went there and I didn't. Did you not? No. <laughs> God, I wonder you got this cold for so long. <laughs> um, you're, meant to, you're meant to give, um, I think it's some it's brandy, I think it is. You go gin. and you pour gin. You go and pour gin um, right? for, for Pele. Yeah. She loves gin. Yeah. There was a hog god oh, yeah. called uh, Kamapua'a, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong. Um, but he married Pele, the fire goddess. Mm-hmm. And um, his habits were so bad because he was a hog that uh, she couldn't cope and they um, they had huge arguments and eventually she won all the arguments and he was forced to surrender and turned himself into a fish. Oh, And that I'm... is a Hawaiian fish and it's the Hawaiian fish with the best name. I think we might have talked about it before. I'm oh, gonna... the really long name. Yeah, okay, I'm going to have a crack at it. Right. It's called the Humu Humu Nuku Nuku Apua'a and it makes this grunting noise which apparently sounds a bit like a hog which is yeah. because it used to be a hog when used he was a god a hog? that yeah. was always a relationship that was going to fail between a volcano and a hog wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's a one way trip to a barbecue basically <laughs> um, um, can we talk about having teeth in vaginas oh sure yeah. um, because this is an extremely common myth around the world around the whole world in fact there are 22 variants of this it's called vagina dentata myth in North American cultures alone. Wow. Uh, the Wichita one has a toothed vagina wandering around at night, castrating men in their sleep. Uh, the Mandaruku myth has a woman with a vagina like a crocodile's mouth. Uh, in Orissa, in India, their myth has the toothed vagina not only castrating men, but also eating the rice crop, causing famine. Oh. Oh. So, and it's basically a misogynistic way of saying that women are evil and you should stay away from them. Right. Right. Wow. I don't know. I thought it was like empowering women. You know, we get to chop off men's penises with our vaginas if we want to. Yeah. I immediately bought into the misogyny. I was like, greedy vagina. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid in most of the time it is quite misogynistic. Very occasionally you get one where the woman is empowered in the story. So in the Chukchi myths, which is in northern Siberia, mm. you have a woman who is married to an old man and to avoid having sex with him. Um, she puts a fish head in her vagina so the teeth will cut him every time he tries to have sex. Right. And she takes the piss out of him, doesn't she? He yeah. he has sex with her the first time. He's like, oh my gosh, there are teeth in there. And then she's like, I can't believe you didn't know all vaginas have teeth. How embarrassing. <laughs> but it's just a fish head that she's put in there. Just yeah. a fish head. And she must take it out. I assume she doesn't leave it there. Once she's got away with it once... She yeah. doesn't have to. She doesn't have to no. have it for her whole life. No. Uh, just the thing on Moana the movie itself. Oh yeah. Um, so if that scene, the vagina crushing scene, was in the movie, obviously it would have been an X-rated movie, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in Italy, they actually had to change the name of Moana altogether because 
in Italy, there was a very famous porn star called Moana, Moana Pozzi. And parents were worried, and they were worried in the studio, that people Googling Moana to see cinema times and so on would come across Moana Pozzi (laughs) instead of the actual cinema. So it was renamed to be Oceana. So in Italy, it was released as Oceana to stop the X-rated references coming up. Which used, of course, to be a very disgusting club in Kingston. Oceana. Which is why it couldn't be called Oceana in the UK. (laughs) Exactly. Had to change it back. (laughs) (laughs) They they did really good research on Moana into Pacific Islanders' Mm. uh, culture and history and stuff, didn't they? And they uh, consulted lots of experts. So I think the creators of the film travelled to Polynesia multiple times and they put together a committee of linguists and anthropologists and historians from all over the Pacific Islands who I think ended up being called the something committee, the Pacific Committee or something. Oh, no, they were called the Oceanic Trust. And they did things like, for instance, Maui, for the first year of when they were coming up with the film, was bald. So if you remember the film, he's got all this curly, Mm. big curly head of hair. Um, And that's because he was bald. And they went to the Pacific Island anthropologist who said, that's incredibly offensive because the hair is where your manner is, is where your power is. And he's very powerful. You've got to give him more hair. So they gave him more and more hair until they told him to stop. But he was was meant to be quite a skinny character as well. Maui in the mythology is a skinny character, but they made him quite large but yes. do we know why that was? Why they, would they go against that? So that was controversial, but that was actually at the advice of the Oceanic Trust Committee. Uh-huh. So he's a very strong character, and people said that this is playing into stereotypes of obesity. But they, the committee said, look, he's this incredibly powerful, imposing figure. And also, it's much funnier if you've got this huge thing. Mm. Um, and he's not fat in the film. I would say he is big-boned Mighty. and strong. Mm. Mighty, exactly. Mighty Maui. Do you know one of the main imports of the Pacific Islands? This is now a general Polynesia effect. Imports? Yeah. Um, spam. Oh, so close. Oh, I think... I thought it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> maybe another one. That, oh, damn, okay. Um, okay, but another food stuff? So it's eels. food stuff that... Amer- not eels. It's food stuff that Americans in the USA uh, eat a lot of, and it's a bit of it that Americans never eat, hmm. but okay. that gets massively oh, eaten. Oh, is it the tie in a Happy Meal? It's the toy and a happy wow, meal. They're what? a huge part. And it's, it's controversial because they've got a lot of plastic in them. And, you know, they'll get eaten a lot in the Pacific. No. Um, oh, it's not. No, it's no, not. That was a great no, guess. Not, Sorry. It's it's, I watched Only Connect the other day and I didn't get anything right. And I know you guys kicked ass on it. So I thought James had just pulled out another stunner there. Um, so it's turkey tails. So oh, I didn't yeah. know about this. But in America each year, there are 250 million turkeys eaten. And turkeys all have this tail, which is this weird oily gland at the very base. Mm, and it's yeah, basically yeah. the gland that keeps the feathers in mm-hmm. of the tail. Um, and it's got this fatty chunk of meat at it, and it's never used. And America, it also gets called the Parsons Nose, yeah. which is a great name for it. Um, but it, it's not sent to shops. It d- just never gets eaten in the USA. So they all get sent to the Pacific Islands. And they started basi- America started basically dumping these there. And now it's a massive part of the diet. In 2007, the average Samoan was eating 44 pounds of turkey tails a year, yeah. which is three times as much as the average American eats turkey. In in, uh, Toto. I think they think it's a real problem, don't they? Because they do have an obesity problem in some Mm. of the islands. And it's because there's so much fat in these turkey tails. Basically, yeah. They they really want to stop importing quite so much, I think. They eat a lot of mutton flaps, too. Do they? That's the thing that New Zealand exports, which is a very very fatty bit of the sheep, basically. And they don't have teeth on them anymore, do they? (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Um, so another Disney film, uh-huh. which um, wasn't exactly true to life, 
um, was Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Pocahontas, the male protagonist is John Smith. I understand, having not seen it. Um, but all these things I don't think are in the film. So um, he was a pirate turned mercenary who fought the Turks in the Balkans. Uh, he was captured and sl- sold into slavery uh, and was a slave for ages and ages before he beat his boss to death in a wheat field and escaped to Russia. Wow. And then because he was so famous as having escaped as a slave, he was invited to help establish the colony in America where he was arrested for mutiny on his way. And then eventually he did get to America and then he did meet Pocahontas, I believe, um, but then had to return to England to recover from a gunpowder incident which blew his genitals off. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. Not so in the movie. He's got no genitals throughout the whole movie. No, this is not in the movie, all this stuff. No, no, but like, you know, underneath the clothes. Um, <laughs> again, I must stress this is not in the movie. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Surely it must be the pre genital. Yeah. This is when he's sent back to England after all the stuff has after happened all the stuff in the Americas. Yeah. Right. But if he couldn't make it with Pocahontas when he had genitals, it's not like he would have stood a chance when he didn't, is it? I guess not. <laughs> That's why. Uh, why these are out. according to his memoirs, uh, he said all this. And historians do assume that they were a total fiction. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> However, one historian, Philip Barber, has said that nothing that he's written has yet been found to be a lie. Oh. So it could be true, it could be not true. Okay. Wow. The story of Cinderella is a bit more terrifying than the one that we know from Disney. I kind of love Disney because they took all the Grimm's fairy tales that are grotesque and made them really child-friendly. But in the original Cinderella, the evil stepsisters, when they want to fit into the shoes, just resort to cutting off bits of their feet. So I think one of them cuts off her own toes and one of them cuts off her own heel. And they're they're caught, apparently, because of uh, the blood dripping from the shoes. Although I would have thought it would be quite obvious if you put your foot into a shoe that you've either got no toes or no heel. I think so. You would have thought you'd notice anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you just get someone to turn up wearing the shoe, I guess you might not. It depends on whether the prince is trying to witness the whole shoe fitting process. No, because I think what happens is that the prince walks around with a shoe and he tries to put it directly onto people's feet, doesn't he? Mm. Yes. He like kneels down and they give them his feet. I guess yeah. so. They give them her, their feet. I see what you're saying because if they went into a dressing room and then, you know, quickly chopped off the toes yeah. and emerged. If the ugly sisters took the shoe and said, I'm sure I will be able to fit into this, just give me one second. And they pop into the kitchen. Got- and then- <laughs> <laughs> I'm out in a minute. Just picking the socks to go with it. I think I picked the red ones. <laughs> Yeah, the Grimm version, they also had, um, they stopped the sisters coming to the wedding um, by having pigeons peck out their eyes. What? Yeah, Yeah, so it was a lot more... Why are they not allowed to come to the wedding? The battle is lost at that point for the sisters. (laughs) (laughs) They're still screaming in agony from the toe thing. They'd ruin the vibe. Just don't send an invitation to the sisters. How about that? Invite them to the evening bit. (laughs) (laughs) But we all know the thing with the wedding is you can only have a certain number of guests and at one stage you have to draw the line and everyone else gets their eyes pecked out. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. 
Andy at Andrew Hunter M. James at James Harkin. And Chazinski. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep. Or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from all of our previous episodes to links to buying our books. And there's also our behind the scenes documentary, Behind the Gills. Check that out. Okay, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Do you know how eels feed themselves on the 3,000-mile journey back to the Sargasso Sea? They keep themselves going by consuming their own bones. So their spine loses 65% of its volume, and the skull loses 50% of its volume, and they break down these bone cells called osteocytes, and they use them to get the minerals and the nutrients they need. Okay, because they do, yeah, they lose all their teeth and their stomach and their digestive system, so I suppose they just have to devour their bones. That would be like if we were born as adults and ended as a baby. A baby isn't an adult without bones, and you've got a <laughs> no. child. No, no, but I'm talking. They have they have more bones than adults, <laughs> so it's not like that. It's like <laughs> being born as a baby and ending as an adult. <laughs> well, it's good. It's good to know which way round that is. <laughs>